You know, and, and I ran you back to a number of places in the Old Testament that showed you how that the gospel, which is defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, is pictured in type all through uh, the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, and you see that lamb as the lamb of God as it is in type and as it is in picture. I showed you Isaiah 53, Job chapter 30. Thursday night, Aaron asked a question about, you know, uh, how John would have known that. And I showed you over there in 1 Peter chapter 1 how that the Bible tells us that in the Old Testament, two events were prophesied. One of them was the suffering of Christ and then the glory. Suffering be the first coming, the glory being the second. But because the nation of Israel had rejected, uh, they, they couldn't see it. And so God put those two events together. Sometimes he reversed them to, you know, to be a stumbling block to them because they allowed the word of God in the Old Testament to be a stumbling block to them. And last week we talked about in particular, we focused on that gospel picture found in Exodus chapter 12. And I, I don't know of any greater place in the Bible where uh, it is so prominently pictured. Uh, the Passover lamb of Exodus chapter 12, where the nation of Israel now begets their new beginning in the starting of the year from the Feast of Tabernacles. And then Christ today, as the Bible says, he's our Passover lamb. And I showed you 10 parallels between, uh, you know, the Lamb of Exodus and the Lamb of God in John chapter 1. And, you know, I talk about this all the time, and I, I try to do it to encourage you, to try to motivate you, to try to, you know, get you fired up about it, about the depth of the Word of God. And, you know, that's really where it is at. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where it's so important for you to know those things in the Bible on, on that kind of level. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that the doctrinal application uh, was really the spark plug of the Bible. It, it, it makes the Bible come alive. And you saw that last week, how you can take a chapter in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 12, and everybody believes the Old Testament is so boring. You know, that's why they don't want to read it. But when you put the doctrinal spark plugs into it, uh, it just comes alive like it did for us last week. No, no great, no great perception on my part or anybody's part. Just simply believe in the book that God gave us and and uh, and then using those things and learning how to use that application to open up the Bible. You know, and and really, it's not really hard. I, I, and I told you, you know, years and years and years and years and years and years ago, when I first got saved, and I heard Doctor Ruckman preach this message. I marveled at that ability, and I thought that that was going to be the hardest thing for me to ever do. I look back on it now, some almost, you know, 50 years, and uh, I would tell you now that it was really the easiest thing. But what it comes down to is that it takes a process. You know, most people love the Bible. Most people will stand up and defend the Bible, but what is, what is the difference between somebody who learns the Bible in depth and somebody that does not and just stays with the surface stuff is their discipline in that Bible. And that is really the key to unlocking the Scriptures. It has to be a process of biblical discipline that you hold yourself accountable to, Using and learning the key words, the key chapters, the, the books themselves. 
And, you know, and then building in the Bible through that structure that God intended it to be for us. But it takes a discipline. You know, you, you can always find, in, in my estimation anyhow, someone that is really disciplined in the Bible for the depth that they have. I mean, people get saved and that's all the farther it ever goes. There's some people that all they ever do with the Bible is salvation. Most preachers are that way. Every message they ever preach, it's about getting somebody saved. And I'm all for getting people saved, but I got to tell you something. There's more to the Bible than that. Do you understand that? I mean, what do you do with them after you get them saved? Keep getting them saved every week? You have to come to the point where you discipline yourself in a structure of learning the Bible and then staying with it. My first book that I wrote uh, was a book called How to Study the Bible. And yes, it has sold well under a million copies. And that was some 35, 40 years ago that I did that. And, uh, you know, it was intended to lay out uh, all the keys to unlock the Bible. I I got a great story to tell you this week. I got a phone call. And uh, Eddie Ballou, uh, you're probably watching this morning, so... Uh, uh, so you're going to enjoy this. Uh, I, uh, I, I got a phone call this week from a lady in West Virginia, and her name is Betty. And Betty is 85 years old. And Betty, if you're listening this morning, I love you, darling, and uh, we're, going to, we're going to take care of you. And she, she called me, and she said, is this Pastor Alexander? And I said, yes, it is. And she was so elated. She said, you do not know how long I have been looking for you. And she said, do you know, and she didn't have his name exactly right, but when I, when I straightened the name out, she says, that's the guy. Years ago, somewhere back in the maybe late 80s or the, probably in the 80s, her husband worked for an elevator company, which uh, Eddie uh, Glenn Ballou worked for the elevator company too. That's what he did all of his life. And she said, this guy brought in a book. It was in a notebook. And it was about how to study the Bible. And she said, I, I, my, my, when my husband brought it home, she said, I, and said, look at this. It's a book on how to study the Bible. She said, oh, yeah, another one of those books. She says, I want to tell you, I started reading it and I couldn't put it down. She says, I fell in love with that book. She says, I lost that book someplace. And I have been looking for you for years to try to find out if I could get that book. And I thought to myself, that's, boy, if that's not an irony of my life. Some people are trying to get away from me and other people are trying to get to me. <laughs> and it's a, thing where, it's a thing where I said, well, man, we still have the book. It's a little different format now, but we still have the book. And I said, would you, would you like a copy? And she says, I want 10 copies. I said, okay, ma'am, we'll get them. They're stacked, half of them are stacked back there now, and, and, and they're going to be going in the mail t- to you this week, most of them. And then, I, then she wanted two books that I wrote early on in the book of Acts. Well, I never wrote a book in the book of Acts, but it was obviously the charismatic movement. And so I got some of those put in for you. And then, honey, I wanted to tell you, I went through there and picked out some things that I want to give you for Christmas that I think you'll really enjoy. And uh, so that your Christmas package will come, and I'll make sure you get it. I'm going to send it out. I don't care how heavy it is. I'm going to send it out, you know, uh, um, priority mail this week, and uh, you should have it, and I'm going to try to get it out tomorrow. But I'm telling you, it was, it was it, that book, How to Study the Bible, was intended 
till they had all the keys and unlocked the Bible. I don't know if you know this or not, but we're on, I don't even know what this is. John Busquette set this up, that there's an there's a online thing out there where uh, what they'll do is they'll, <coughs> they, you, you send them your books, and they put them out there and, and, and then sell them, and then they give you a, a, a percentage of it back, and, and, and they, they print them and everything, and they do all the work. And I'm telling you, they got a, like 19 or 20 of my books, and they just keep sending checks. I mean, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable how people are starving for the Word of God. And the number one book that sells out of all of them is the How to Study the Bible. And uh, it's a thing where, you know, it's helped so many people. And I, and I appreciate the Lord, you know, bringing people into my world like that that I don't even know about. And it happens every week. But I want to tell you, that book was intended to lay out all the keys to form a discipline in your life. Now, I've taught it, you know, in everything that I do. You, if you never read the book, if you've been around here any length of time, you got it from Sunday morning, Thursday night, or whatever, because I'm using them all the time. But that book, in my original intention, was to show my people the doctrinal, historical, and inspirational application and how it will be laid out by the key words, the key chapters, the key phrases. You know, in our time together over the last years, since we've started our church, been many, many years now, you know, like every church, we have a lot of people come and a lot of people go. It's, it's just across the board the way it goes. Not everybody that comes stays. Not everybody who comes stays, stays, stays. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where that's just the way it works in, in the ministry. But the ones that got into the Word of God, you that I'm talking to this morning, the ones that got into the Word of God, it paid off for you. We've been doing Bible Institute. I have tried to create, if you remember back when we first started, New Year's Eves were were Bible conferences. We weren't ready for that yet. But you remember we took on New Year's Eve, we started at 6 and went to 11 or, or midnight And I took a whole, I mean, for four or five hours, we didn't stop. And I took whole segments. And all that stuff is on the website back there. But it was my goal to help you to ignite your love for the book, to study it, to get a depth. And you know what? In so many of your lives, it has paid off. And you have a really good, what I call, a working knowledge of of the Word of God. And... uh, it's built a depth into you. And that great picture puzzle of the Word of God is now beginning to come together for you. We augment that by, by Thursday night Bible study. I take painless uh, steps to, to, to lay out every detail. I don't gloss over questions. I, I, I take the time to give you everything because that's part of our depth process. Sunday mornings the same way. I, I, I try to leave no stone unturned and try to give you everything. I want when you leave here, I want you to have the impression that for the last hour and a half, you just tried to get a drink of water out of an open fire hydrant, which puts water out at about 10,000 feet per second and will take your head off if you stick your head in it. That's the volume of the Word of God that I want to give you while I still can because that's the only thing that's going to pay off for you. And that great picture puzzle of the Word of God, you know, is now beginning to, 
to uh, make sense to you. You follow the principles of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. You study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman, that it needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And you're definitely on my depth chart. Uh, and if we were in a ball game today, you would be definitely my first string players that would play it to the end of the game because you have a depth to you. Uh, you know what you're doing. You, you, you have a, a balance in your life. Now, today, you know, I want to develop the second great doctrinal truth that is found in our verse from last week. And I told you last week that there was a number of things there, or at least two things there. And today I want us to look back at John chapter 1, verse 31. And here's what John says. He says, and I know him, uh, and I knew him not, but that he should be manifest to Israel. Therefore, I am come baptizing with water. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for the depth of the Bible. Thank you for the men and women in this church and the teenagers that have committed themselves to that process, that Thursday night, Bible Institute on Saturday morning, and everything that uh, we do, they, they get a foundation. They have to build inwardly before they have any right to take it outwardly. And we pray, Father, now your blessings upon our time today. Help me to continue to grow and build strong men and women for the Word of God, men and women that are, that are tough, they're strong, uh, they can take adversity, they can face anything because they've been trained through that process. And we'll be careful to give you all the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen. Now, today I want to lay out to you the doctrine on based on verse 31 in the Bible, the doctrine of baptism. Now, I know the moment I say that, you said, well, everybody knows what that is. What's the big deal about that? We ought to be out of here in the next 15 minutes. <laughs> Not so. You know, because I want to tell you, of all the issues within Christianity down through church history, with all the issues that uh, the church had to face, and there's a number of them, there has never been an issue that is more controversial, more damning, and more just one complete mess than the doctrine of baptism. Now, we are called Baptists. Most people don't understand that. You think that we're Baptists because we baptize, and that's not true. In fact, of all the groups that you find, true Bible-believing Baptists are probably the only ones who, when it comes to baptism, we take the position that the only thing that baptism does for you is get you wet. But we got our name Baptist not because we baptize. We don't get, well, you know, there's a group out there called Baptist Briders. And they're a heretical group. And they're, they're, they believe that they can trace their lineage as Baptist back to John the Baptist. And, of course, they call themselves Baptist because his name was John the Baptist. And, therefore, he baptized. So, therefore, they think that that's what they should do. And, of course... Um, that kind of mindset only shows how little you know about the Bible. John was not baptizing for the church. We'll see in a little bit. It's not even the same baptism that you and I have, but I don't want to confuse everybody with a lot of facts this morning. We were called originally, when we were up against the Roman Catholic Church back in the Dark Ages and on through into the Reformation, uh, we were called, we originally were called by, you know, the geographical locations by which we as Bible believers lived. If you were in Italy, 
you were Waldensian. If you were in France, you were Huguenots. Uh, the names were given to them based on the geographical location. But as time changed and the Catholic Church grew and the pressure and the, and the uh, uh, persecution grew and the Baptists who were called by Waldensians and then they weren't called Baptists yet, but as they grew, the Catholic Church then honored us with the name that we have today and they gave us the name of uh, originally it was Pedro Anabaptist. Pedro is child or baby, and Anna is against. And we got the name that we got originally because the Catholic Church was teaching that baptizing, baptizing your child would wash away original sin. And the Bible believers didn't believe that or didn't teach that or knew that that was heresy. And so we took a stand against it. So we got the name Pedro Anabaptist. We were against infant baptism. A little bit later on, we just, they dropped the Pedro and they called us the Anabaptists, which we were against the baptism of the Roman Catholic Church. A little bit later on, by the time you get to the 1500, 1600, they dropped the Anna and were Baptists. But traditionally, Baptists, the only thing that they believe about baptism, uh, as far as what it does for you uh, physically, is get you wet. And uh, it's a thing where uh, you're going to see that there's all kinds of groups and baptism has been the number one heretical, damnable heresy that probably has put more people in hell uh, than you could ever imagine. And, uh, you, know, you, you know, you have the Methodist church. You have the Lutheran church. You have the Christian church. You have the Church of Christ. You have the Presbyterian church. You have the Catholic church. You have the Mormon church. You have the Jehovah Witnesses. You have the Episcopalians. You have the Anglicans. You know, they all teach, they all teach and, and, and believe that baptism is the mode salvation. That when you get baptized, God uses that water to wash away your sins in place of the blood of Christ. I talked to a, a Church of Christ guy one time years ago and I pushed him on it. I said, well, you know, and, 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 but here's the deal. All of them believe that only their church has real salvation, and the only way you can get real salvation is getting baptized in that church. Catholic won't accept any other baptism. Jehovah Witnesses certainly won't. Mormons certainly won't. I talked to a Church of Christ guy one time years ago, and I asked him about that, and I pushed the issue, and he said, okay, here it is. When we baptize somebody, the blood of Christ gets applied through that water to their sins. And I said, you're telling me that the public water system that you fill up your baptistry with is what God uses to transubstantiate the blood to a person's soul to cleanse them. Is that right? He had never thought of it that way. He had to think about that for a few moments. That's ridiculous. And, of course, they all teach baptism for salvation. Then you have the charismatics. They believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And uh, you'll find that uh, there are Baptists who are like that. We call them four-square Baptists. And uh, sometimes they're called hard-shell Baptists. And uh, they believe that uh, once you get saved, that you don't have all of the Holy Spirit of God, that you get baptized at some point with the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, the evidence of that is speaking in tongues and, you know, and, and doing all that goofy stuff. Then you have the hyper-dispensationalists, who they cut up the New Testament so much 
that they don't even believe that baptism uh, is for the church. And so they go around teaching that, you know, I've had those guys who had, I had a guy say one time, I repented a little. He was a, in a Baptist church, got baptized, got saved, and then got caught up in a hyper-dispensationalist crowd. And he actually told me, he says, I want you to know, I repented to God of my baptism. And I'm thinking to myself, you're an idiot. I mean, it, it, it just, I mean, how stupid can somebody get? But brother, I'll tell you what, baptize. Then you have the crowd. I can't remember exactly who they were. But in their church, they baptize you seven times backwards and three times forward. I, I, that's what I said. Hmm? I, I, I don't get it. Now, Baptist churches, like fundamental Baptist churches, I was almost said like ours, but we're not like them, uh, but Baptist churches traditionally, as I was growing up in the, in the church in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, before, long before you, you all were born, you know, traditionally, uh, we as, as, as people getting baptized, uh, when you got baptized in a church, that's what the church accepted uh, for your membership into the church. That uh, you couldn't join the church if you were not baptized, which... I understand, but any time when you got baptized, you were automatically now a member of the church. Now, in other words, baptism was the key to membership. Now, I don't really have an issue with that. I mean, if that's what you want to do, uh, but that's okay. But that's not in the Bible in any way, shape, or form. You know, um, you know, you don't join a church uh, in the New Testament by being baptized. Now, I'll say that everybody in the New Testament, the Book of Acts, that got saved, did next thing it is get baptized. But Baptists have a way of traditionalizing things and then using things to try to get you to do things. And I never follow that rule. I really don't. I mean, um, you know, my idea, I've had people all the time say, well, how do you join your church? And I said, I don't know. I I mean, however you want to. It's a thing where I've been in churches all my life where people came down, got down, prayed, I want to join the church, signed a paper, and got baptized and then walked out and never did a thing with it. I'm not interested in that. You know how you'll join this church? When you actively get involved in it, when you support it financially, and you get involved in ministry. You decide when you're part of it, not me. And that's just the way that it should work. Now, in understanding baptism, again, we're going to go down deep today, so get a big breath of air. And, uh, you know, uh, in Bible Institute, which uh, we're in our last three phases of that, and then we're going to, told him yesterday, we had a great time yesterday, Hebrews chapter 10, brother, I'll tell you, we cracked that nut open, and it was a great time in the book. But I've told him many, many times, once we're done with these last three books, Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews, then we're going to launch into an in-depth study of church history. And I'm going to bring everybody, and that'll bring us around full circle. But the first year of Bible Institute, this is what we teach. This is basically, to me, Bible 101. And, uh, you know, as in everything in the Bible, we must find, first of all, no matter what it may be, we have to get the definitive verse on it. And I try to tell you that all the time. I, I tell you to, you know, and sometimes it gets, it just, I don't know, I guess people just don't listen. But I try to tell you the two major fundamental keys to begin to unlock your Bible. No matter where you go, what you're looking at will be to find two things. First of all, will be the context. And for the life of me, you know, people just won't do that. And the second thing is that whatever you're looking at, whatever subject, there will be a definitive verse on it. That's where you have to start. 
trying to start to lay something out without you understanding that where it's defined in the Bible will always lead to trouble. So I push those two things all the time. And, uh, you know, and in John chapter 1, verse 31, we have our definitive verse. I don't know if you saw it or not. We have our definitive verse on what baptism is. Let's read it again. It says that he, Christ, should be made manifest to Israel, therefore I come baptizing with water. Now, that's what you start with when you want to study baptism. The definition of baptism in the Bible is that it manifests something. And you start with that, that definition of it. <laughs> Baptism will manifest something for us. Now, here's where the confusion comes in uh, when it comes to baptism. In Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, Paul makes this statement to the church. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then he says this, there is one body... And one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. Then he says this, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now he says in verse 5 that there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. But yet, in the Bible, as we come through it, we're going to find that there actually is seven baptisms in the Bible. Now, you can see where that would be confusing to somebody that, that wasn't disciplined in a structure, that wasn't in a church someplace. And, and I'm going to tell you, God never intended any Christian just to get saved and then for you to figure out your Bible on your own. The book of Ephesians is very clear that the church exists for one reason and one reason only, and that is to edify you. That a Bible-believing church, the job of that pastor is to give you all the tools and to equip you. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen today, but that's beside the point. That's exactly what we are supposed to do. And of course, you know, know, here, this is the confusion. And the confusion is that he says there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. But then when we start getting into the scriptures, we find that there's seven. And this baptism here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, 4, 5, and 6, I'm going to tell you right now, has absolutely nothing to do with water. They're in water within 100 million light years of these verses. Now, what he's saying here is that there's one true baptism. Now, this baptism, as I said, has absolutely nothing to do with water. The other baptisms found in the Bible, the other six of them, will all manifest something when you put it all together and have then a complete understanding and picture of what this real baptism is. Because there's only one true, real baptism. But there's other pictures of it through baptism in the Bible. Now, I'll tell you now, the real baptism, and I said one more time, had absolutely nothing to do with water. And baptism traditionally has been the problem down through history. Did you ever notice that when Jesus showed up, there's two things that he did not do? You know, we go through and we look at all the things that Jesus did. You had to go through and look at the things that he didn't do. And the two things that he didn't do, first of all, is that he never called Mary his mother. He never did. 
He never called Mary mother. He called her a woman. Now, some people think that that's disrespectful. And of course, that wasn't the case. He had all the respect for her in the world. He knew and had the insight and foresight that if he called Mary his mother, that there would be a church down the road someplace that would make Mary the mother of God. And even though he never called her, they still did it. I'll tell you the second thing he never did. He never baptized anybody. You ever notice that? Jesus never baptized anybody. Somebody says, well, baptism is the mode of salvation. Well, I could take you a thousand places where Jesus saved somebody. But you'll never find one time where he never baptized anybody. You know why? You know why he refused to baptize anybody? Had other people do it? Because he didn't want somebody coming down in church history saying that salvation is by baptism. So he refused to do it, even though they still do it. These are little things in the Bible on your way down to the depth chart. You pick up. You just pick up. Now, uh, you need to see this. We talked about a discipline, a structure of discipline in your Bible. God wrote the Bible. There's no question about that. We all understand that. And God wrote the Bible in a way that he wanted to portray it to us. The Bible is its own dictionary. The Bible is its own history book. Uh, the Bible is everything. The Bible will show you, and you say, well, there's a lot of things in history that the, that the Bible doesn't cover. Yeah, let me rephrase that. God, the Bible is a history book as far as what God's interested in, not what man's interested in. So all the other things that you got in school and college about history that you don't find in the Bible, you know why you don't? Because God didn't give a flip about it. And the very things that you make the predominant things in history or the things that God doesn't care about, the very things that God makes the predominant things in the Bible and history, you don't care about. See the problem? Well, along with that, when God wrote the Bible, God built into it his own way of studying it. It's called, I call it anyhow, God's systematic theology. Now, theology is studying the Bible. The word systematic means that there is a system to it. Uh, when I was growing up, and probably still is to many guys, there was a set of books out there uh, that, was the, that was held up as the greatest books that you could ever get uh, to really learn and understand the Bible. It was a guy by, by the name of Schaefer. And the name of the book was Schaefer's Systematic Theology. And then we ran about four or five volumes. And everybody that was anybody thought that, and you would hear him say it all the time, and how you know, Schaefer's systematic theology and this and this and that and everybody was using the Bible colleges, the professors and everybody just raved about Schaefer's systematic theology. There was more Bible truth in a mad magazine than there was in Schaefer's systematic theology. But you see, when you have a Christianity that isn't built on the Bible and scholarship that cares nothing about the Bible, their systematic theology has to be built on a man. What I give you on Sunday morning, Thursday night, Bible Institute and all those things is God's systematic theology. Because I'm dumb enough to know that when God wrote a book, it was his right to lay out how we should study it. I don't have a right to get into that and tell you how you should study the Bible. I just will tell you the way God already laid it out for you to study it. God's systematic theology runs through a series of sevens. Because seven in the Bible is a number of perfection. So when I started out years ago and years and years and years and years ago, I followed that systematic theology. When we started Bible Institute, you know, I started the systematic theology. Some of you, you know, have been with me for what, 25, 30 years way back. You got the systematic theology back then. I'm not sure why it didn't work for you, but you got it. You got it. 
For instance, he tells us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that we are to be stewards of the mysteries of God. And you'll find in the Bible there are seven mysteries. Then you'll find that there's seven resurrections in the Bible. We already know that there's seven judgments in the Bible. We already know that there's seven periods of church history. When you want to get down a little deeper, you'll find that your Bible, there's seven marriages in the Bible. And they all picture the day we get married to the Lord. There's seven barren women in the Bible who at first do not have children, and they're all a picture of the nation of Israel, and then later on they have a child just like Israel's barren right now, but she's going to bear fruit. I've given it to you before that there's seven stages of your spiritual growth. There's seven laws in the Bible that, that you operate by, and you don't even know what they are. If somebody put a gun to your head this morning and you were standing up before a group of people and you had to lay out the seven laws, your brains would be on the wall before you could get them out. You know why? I don't know why. Why don't you know those? Seven laws in the Bible. You operate by them every day. In the Old Testament, you want to find out how the Old Testament is built? It's built around seven men. You want to break it down and real and, and they're, 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 you're told that by their by name. Then when you get into the New Testament, Paul says that there's seven things that you and I as Christians ought to be not ignorant of. And you know what? The seven most ignorant things of God's people are those seven things. They have no clue. You love the Bible? You love the Bible? There's seven aspects to the Word of God. Do you know what they are? You say, well, I'm a Christian. I, I got saved, all right. Are you growing? Well, I'm growing. Well, how are you growing? Because there are seven things you need to add to your faith to grow. Do you know what they are? And when we get into history, there's seven great awakenings down through church history in America. But then there's seven counterfeits. That's how baptism got so screwed up today. You say, well, I really love God. Do you? I do. I want to serve God. I want to be what God wants me to be. Fine. Good. I'm happy for you. There's seven things that please God. Do you know what they are? Well, I love God. I love everything about him. Good. There's seven things that God loves. Do you know what they are? You want to unlock the Bible. There's seven keys to unlocking the Bible. Do you know what they are? I don't mean to get real deep on you, but in the Garden of Eden, way back in Genesis, there were seven trees. Do you know where they're at? I mean, there's seven things that God loves. There's seven things that pleases him. And then there's seven things that God hates. That's over there in Proverbs in, in 6, verse 16. And there's six things that he hates, and then he lists those, and then there's a seventh that caps it off. You know what the seventh is? The one that God's people are so guilty of, sowing discord among the brethren. And on and on it goes. And when you systematically, over the years, when you start to break those down, hey, I don't know how many times I've been through them on Bible study. I know we've been through them in Bible Institute. I've been over and over and over and over again. If you've been around here any length of time at all, you've had it. I don't know how many times. Why is it sticking? And along with that, when you completely lay out in your Bible these seven baptisms, and each one of them will manifest something different. But all of them will point you to the one true baptism 
in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, that has absolutely nothing to do with water. Well, let's look at it. The first one we want to look at will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. And I, I, if I may give you a little suggestion today, I mean, I know you're all eager to learn the Bible and everything, and I appreciate that, and that's true of just about all of you. But you're not going to be able to keep up on this. My suggestion to you is you do what I've had to do and all the depth people on the depth chart did, go home, get it on the thing or get the tape and sit down and go through this thing because there ain't no way you're going to keep up. If I was you, I'd just sit back and enjoy it. And uh, the first one you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, and this will be called the baptism of Israel. And he says, Moreover, and brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and that all eat the same spiritual meat. Now, this in here is called the baptism of Moses. And this is the first one we're going to find. It's all the way back uh, in Exodus uh, chapter 10 uh, when they come out of Egypt. And this one happened to the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt and they crossed over the Red Sea. Now, I want you to know that this baptism wasn't by, this baptism wasn't by immersion. It was by what we would call aspersion. In other words, when God rolled back the Red Sea, there was a mist. You ever been to Niagara Falls where the water's coming over the falls and you go down on that little thing down there to see the falls close up? You have to wear all kinds of rain gear because you don't get hit by the water, but you get soaked by the mist. So they're walking through this thing and the mist is completely soaking them and they're immersed or aspersed would be the word by the mist and by the water. And, you know, in, in the same chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 and then verses 10, you're told that these things, the baptism of Moses, is given to us as an example and as an example. So there's an example. There's something this wants to manifest to us. It's amazing. You know, to me, uh, you know, I gave you last week Exodus chapter 12, and I showed you how that that's the gospel uh, of the Passover land, and that is so true. But, you know, I, I don't know what you know about the Bible, but I'm going to tell you right now, the book of Exodus itself, the whole book, is one of the greatest pictures of the Christian life and the entirety of what we go through and how God systematically builds things in our lives. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen it. And then baptism is put right in here as an example and an example. Because they're coming, out of the, they're coming out of Egypt. And now they're baptized in a cloud. And it's a picture and manifest when you and I come out of Egypt, the world, we got baptized. Now, let me show you how this book works. It's a great book. Let's take the first three chapters. The first three chapters is the nation of Israel under bondage. And what it's a picture of, it's a picture of you and me under the bondage of Egypt or the world. Because before you got saved, you were a slave to this world. And it worked you hard to kill you. And everything you did as an unsaved man or woman was to make this world better and it was going to grind you in the process. And you know what happened. Well, you find that in chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6, the children of Israel cry out, 
God, I can't stand this anymore. And so many of you who are now saved, before you got saved, you had it with the world. The world was crushing you. And without ever knowing it, you turned your eyes toward heaven and you said, God, I, I, I don't know if I can take this anymore. And you know what God did for you? He did the same thing in chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6. He did with the nation of Israel when they cried out. He sent them a deliverer. Their deliverer was Moses. Your deliverer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, what happens then? Well, now we get into chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. And what happens now that Moses goes to Pharaoh, a type of the devil, and says, let this guy go. Israel. And now we see in those chapters where the adversary, Pharaoh, type of the devil, doesn't want to lose you. And boy, that's a study in itself, how that the Pharaoh manipulated everything to keep them, just like, just like the devil will do in your life to keep you from being saved. Oh, but in chapter 12, last week, the blood of the Lamb... And I, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, and they come out of Egypt, just like when you put the blood on your soul, you come out of the world. So they're saved in chapter 12, just like you were. You know what happens in chapter 13? They get sanctified. You know what the first thing that happened the moment you got saved? God set you apart. He sanctified you. Then in chapter 14, they're coming out of Egypt. They're now saved by the blood, and they go through, and now they're baptized. Chapter 15, they get a new song that they sing called the Song of Moses. That's Psalms chapter 40. He put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and trust in the Lord. You know what happened when you got saved? You got a new song to sing. Then in chapter 16, now they're going through the wilderness of sin. There's nothing there to sustain them. Can't find any water, can't find any food. Just like after you and I got saved, nothing in this world would satisfy us anymore. And you know what God does? God brings down water out of the rock and supernatural food called manna from heaven. And he feeds them with manna, a type of the word of God, to sustain them in their wilderness journey, just like God gave you the book that you got in your hand today to sustain you through your wilderness journey. You know what you find in chapter 17? you find a picture of your prayer life. You know what you find in chapter 18? You find people in the ministry you're going to have to deal with. You know what you find in chapter 19 through 24? You find our relationship to the law, Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11. You know what you find in chapter 25 and 26 and 27? You find a real definition of worship, what worship really is. You know what you find in chapter 28 and 31? A defining of you and me now as a priest unto God. You know what you find in chapter uh, 32 through 40? The work of the ministry. Wow. All in one book. You see, this book manifests itself in the baptism of Moses as they went through that manifest. Through that book, the new life that we have in Christ Jesus and it's for our example and for our example, uh, in sample. Now, the second baptism will be right where we're at today in John chapter 1. This will be the baptism of John. And this is our verse today, verse 31. 
And we see this baptism has nothing to do with you or me, but rather it has to do with the nation of Israel. John the Baptist was manifesting Christ to the nation of Israel. Somebody who tells you, well, I got baptized because Jesus got baptized. You don't know what you're talking about. Jesus got baptized to manifest himself to Israel. Is that why you got baptized, you idiot? We're not Israel. Now, when Jesus came down to John, this is where it gets good. Jesus comes down to John and he says, I need to get baptized. And John says, hey, hey, pal, I got need to be baptized by you. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, he says, that may be true. Suffer it be for now. That means, don't worry about it, John. Uh, for thus it become to us to fulfill all righteousness. You know what he's saying? He's saying, John, I'm coming to you to be baptized even though I'm sinless because Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12 says that I have to be numbered with the transgressors. Even though I'm sinless and perfect, I have to identify with the people who are sinners to be numbered with them to fulfill the scriptures. So yeah, I probably should baptize you, but that won't play because I got to fulfill all righteousness. So I'm going down to the river where the sinners are and I'm going to have you baptize me to manifest myself to them. And I'll tell you right now, that's a great key of of identifying with your people for us, for a pastor anyhow. You know, Jesus always showed up where the sinners were. He cared nothing about the intellectual crowd. In fact, he hung out with them so much that he got accused of all kinds of stuff, being a wine-bibber and hanging out with this and that and all these guys, but that's where, that's where the need was. So he's down there at the river. John's baptism was baptizing him as a sinless man because to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures of being numbered with the transgressors because that's where the sinners were. And by doing that, based on the Old Testament scriptures, he manifested himself to the nation of Israel. See how easy that is? Not complicated at all. Now, let's look at the third one. Now, the third one is the baptism of Jesus' death. And this will be Matthew chapter 20, verses 22. And Jesus is having a discussion here with the disciples, and they want to know who's going to be the number one in the kingdom. (laughs) But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask, Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they say unto him, we are able. Now here again, this baptism here has absolutely nothing to do with water, but it manifests something. Christ was baptized by John years before this happened. In fact, Christ is on the way to the cross. This is years. So this hasn't had anything to do with John's baptism. But this is another great picture or manifestation of the true baptism. The baptism here, he's definitely referring to his physical death. He's going to die on the cross and he's going to go down under to Abraham's bosom and then he's going to raise up himself up the third day. So the picture is Christ is up in heaven. He comes down through Mary. He's on this earth. He's crucified. He dies. He goes under Abraham's bosom, and then he comes back up the third day, resurrected, and then back up to heaven, Acts chapter 1. And it's a picture of his physical death. Now, all three of these guys, Peter, James, and John, do die at the hand of Rome. And there's no question about it. They're all killed uh, by, by, by Rome, and they do experience that baptism. 
So here he's talking about his own physical death being like a baptism because he came down, went under, and came back up. So when we baptize you and we stand you up there, we follow that same procedure. We take you and put you under, picture of him coming down and dying, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. It manifested that. You know, when you go back to the book of Jonah, Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, connects the story of Jonah with Christ's resurrection. He says, as, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so the Son of Man shall be in the heart of the earth. And when you read that count back there in, J- in Jonah chapter 2, uh, verses 3 through 5, Jonah in that whale, he, he says it. He goes down to the bottom. The weeds wrapped around him. And the gates of hell. It's a picture of Jonah dying. I, I don't know if you know it or not, but for years and years and years, uh, it, 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 in the 1800s and beyond, when somebody died, they used to say he went under. We don't say that anymore. We just call the undertaker. See? Because physical death has always been going under. And it's a picture. His death was a picture of him coming down, dying on the cross, and that's the baptism of Jesus' death. No water to it at all, see? But it manifests something. Now, our fourth baptism is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Oh, glory, here we go. I would say that this is the key verse that has sent more people to hell in so-called Christianity than any other, any other verse in the Bible. And uh, this one has sent millions, if not billions, to the lake of fire uh, in the last 2,000 years. And its official start, if you want to mark it, is in Acts chapter 19. And this is called the baptism of Israel's repentance. Uh, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now this baptism is to Israel on the basis of a national salvation. The church age is not in effect yet. You have every cult group out there will take Acts chapter 2 verse 38 and try to stick it into the church age. And there is no church age. We saw last week that the Exodus chapter 12, that it was the lamb was to be a male killed in the evening and the whole congregation of Israel was to kill it. And I made that parallel to Christ's first coming in the crucifixion that all the nation of Israel was responsible for killing him. So this baptism here has to do with, uh, it's connected to John's baptism, but it's different because it's after the death of Christ where John was before but when Peter gets up and he says this, and you've got to read the whole chapter. He's up there, and he's just told them in Acts chapter, uh, you know, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. He just told them that the, uh, this same Jesus that you have crucified, God has made Lord in Christ. He said that in verse 37. So when he tells them that, the Jews listening to him say, really? If that's true, and we crucified Jesus, who God has made Lord of Christ, what shall we do? Now, the crooked crooked, uh, Church of Christ and the crooked Mormon and the crooked Jehovah Witness will add to that. Where your Bible says, what shall we do? Their Bible says, what shall we do too? But when they preach it, they add to it, what shall we do to be saved? 
Nobody's asking what to do to be saved here. What the nation of Israel is asking, now that you have told us that we have killed Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, we, we didn't accept John's baptism. We crucified him. We killed him. God made him Lord in Christ. Now what do we do? And Peter says, you know what you do? You get baptized in the name of Jesus, the man you crucified for the remission of your sin as a nation. So it has nothing to do with the church. It's to Israel, to the nation, not the church age. Church age is not even in effect yet. This is the ability for those of you who have some depth to you to be able to break down the book of Acts, how the book of Acts is built around two divisions. The first division is Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. That's a, then you have a division. The second one is chapter 8 to chapter 19, and then verse 20 uh, is another division. Well, really 20 and then 21 is another division. And the whole book of Acts just breaks down. You see, that's a natural, systematic, biblical, God-given outline by him laying out the books the way he did. It's your job and my job to know that. It isn't enough to know John 3.16. It isn't enough to not just want to get people saved. It isn't enough to get up and preach about salvation and how you trust Christ. You have to know the whole counsel of God. You have to study to show thyself approved. It's to Israel. And it's based fundamentally on John's baptism to wash away Israel's sin, but the difference is now they've killed him. So it's a different format. Now our fifth baptism will be for you and for me. Ah, Gentile baptism, finally. Something that you and I can identify with. All this other stuff has been examples and manifestations, uh, but they haven't been to us. Now this one is. And this one is in Acts chapter 16. We'll pick it up in verse 25. Now, Paul is in jail, and uh, this is where the Philippian jailer gets saved. It's a favorite place to preach about people getting saved. And it says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, and so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all of the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And a keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword uh, and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had, had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for you're all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Ah, now you see the difference? Back in Acts chapter 2, they just said, what shall we do because we crucified the Messiah? Ah, this guy here, he gets it right down, doesn't he? What must I do to be saved? See the difference? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. No baptism involved in it. You saw that, right? He said, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. No baptism to it as far as the salvation is concerned. You just believe and your whole house will get saved. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in the house. They went unto Christ. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into, into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced believing in God with all his house. You see that thing? Now that's how you got baptized. 
you got saved and then you got baptized. And baptism for you and for me manifests something. When you get over there in Acts chapter 8, you have the story before this one with the Ethiopian eutych and Philip. Baptism is, you know, Philip sees this guy sitting on the back of the chariot and he, he asks him, he says, do you understand what you're reading? The guy says, no. He gets up there and sits with him. He talks Isaiah 53, blood atonement, Christ dying on the cross as the lamb. And he wins that guy to Christ. And then they're riding along and the guy says, here is much water. What doth hindered me from being baptized? Oh, here comes the qualification for your baptism, pal. If you believe that Jesus Christ with all of your heart, if you're saved first, then you get baptized. He says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Stops the chariot. Now even the mode of baptism is laid out. The Bible says there had to be much water. He says, here is much water. Well, if sprinkling was the process, you're telling me you're going through the desert without any water in your canteen? If you could just sprinkle the guy and that's baptism, then you don't need much water. You just sprinkle it on your hand and hit him in the face with it. But you see, baptism pictures death. Your baptism and my baptism is an in outward expression to the world. It manifests to the world what supposedly has changed on the inside of you. So this guy in Philippians 2, or, or uh, Philipp in jailer here in Acts chapter 16, his family and him get baptized. And they took him there and he put him under the water and brought him up out of the water. It pictures Christ's death coming down, as we already saw, baptism of Jesus' death, him going under and coming back up. So when I want to manifest to the world my public profession of what has changed in me, I get baptized. And I go before all the assembled people and they watch me be put under like he was and brought back up. It's immersion. Come on, folks. It pictures a death, burial, and resurrection. We've all been to funerals. They put the guy in a casket and they put him down in the ground. How many funerals have you ever been to that they set the guy in a corner and throw dirt in his face? It's immersion. You go under. And you come back up. Now, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. It says, the like figure, whereunto even baptism does all now save us. Oh, they love that verse. And here again, they won't read the next part of the verse, which is in parentheses. It says, the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Parentheses. Not putting away the filth of the flesh. Baptism does not save you but rather an answer with a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You manifest yourself that I have been saved inwardly by being baptized outwardly, displaying the manifestation of Jesus' death on the cross and his baptism of his death. You walk away with a good conscience toward God that you did what God wanted you to do. Now the sixth one. <laughs> I got to tell you, this is my favorite. This is in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, and this is the baptism of fire. It says, I indeed, John says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. 
Now, this one here is a great example of how somebody who has no depth of the Bible, has no mind of the Bible, doesn't care anything about the Bible, you just get in it because of what you want to do with it. You can care squat about any discipline in the Bible, any structure in the Bible. You just want to use it for whatever you want to do with it. So, you got these charismatics running around, the radical ones, and they go around praying for the baptism of fire. I've been in charismatic services where they're down there and they're saying, oh God, give me the baptism of fire. God, give me the baptism of fire. And the baptism of fire, when you get it after you're supposedly saved, the evidence of that is then you speak in tongues like they did with cloven tongues of fire. And now you've got the baptism of fire as far as the charismatic church is concerned, based on Matthew chapter 3. And yet uh, there is no baptism of fire in Christianity today. And, and, and I don't know how to tell you this, so I'm going to hit this one very softly. But that baptism of fire he's talking about in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, and that you're praying for to get, that there is the second coming of Christ and somebody going to hell and winding up in the lake of fire. If you look at that verse, he says he's going to give some people the Holy Ghost, that's the ones that get it, and some others are going to get baptized in fire. Did you ever wonder why the eternal state of an unsaved man is in a lake? A lake of fire? I mean, did that ever turn on any lights for you? If that wasn't enough, when you look down at the next verse in 12, it says, Who's fa-? I'll read it together. I indeed baptize you with water and repentance, but there's one that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, and he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into his garner, Israel. But here it comes. He will burn the chaff, unsaved people, with unquenchable fire. And that stupid charismatic old God. Aren't you glad God doesn't answer all our prayers? Oh, God, give me the baptism of fire. Okay, right in the lake of fire you go. You know, see... When you put it all together, and I don't have time to develop this, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, and Mark chapter 9, verse 48 talks about that when a man goes into the lake of fire, he's a carcass, he's a worm. And a lake of fire, however we can imagine it, will be a lake filled with carcasses of men who are worms, no arms, no legs. Just if you've ever seen a bunch of squiggling maggots in a pile, that's what it's like. And for all of eternity in the lake of fire, you'll just be squiggling around. If you ever watched them, that squiggling has a motion, and they go down, and then they squiggle the way back up, and they go down for all of eternity. You're baptized with a baptism of fire. <laughs> oh, God, give me the baptism of fire. I wish he would. The last one. Now we've come to the true baptism, the one that everything else points to because this is the one true baptism. When he says one faith, one Lord, and one baptism, here it is. And it has absolutely nothing, and I mean nothing to do with water. And this will be found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, as we already looked at, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And this will be the baptism of the Holy Ghost the Holy Spirit, in a biblical sense, based on the Bible, not a charismatic goofiness. And this one will be the one baptism of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. And all the other ones are one way or another a figure of this one, and each one will manifest something. 
Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, 13 says this, For by one Spirit, this is your salvation, by one Spirit, Holy Spirit of God, are we baptized into one body, the body of Christ. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, we have all been made to drink into one Spirit. This baptism is the baptism that takes place the very instant you trust Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. And when you get saved, you get all the Holy Spirit of God that there is. You're immersed in it. Just like we put you under the water and you go completely under the water, the Bible says now you're complete in Him once you're saved and you have everything because you have been immersed. Your soul has been immersed in the Holy Spirit of God. Filled, immersed, and sealed. A total completeness. So it's called a baptism. He dwells in you now through an immersion of your soul. Now, when you go over to Colossians chapter 2, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, uh, we find that this is called the doctrine of spiritual circumcision. Let's read it. And this is, how it, this, is the, this is what took place when he got saved. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, there it is, which is the head of all principalities and powers. Here it comes. In whom also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Here it comes. Buried with him in baptism. And that ain't water. That's by one spirit we all baptized into one body. That's the spiritual immersion of your soul with the Holy Spirit of God. Buried with him in baptism, wherein you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. Now you see that? That verse is how you got saved. It's what really happened. A cutting away of your flesh from your soul, creating a new man and a new nature. And you got saved by Christ's death, him coming down, going under, coming back up, buried with him in baptism, where also you were risen with him in the faith of the operation of God. So when you got saved based on Christ's death, baptism of death, he takes that and he baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. By one spirit are you all baptized and it puts you into the body of Christ. So when you got saved, we get baptized physically in water. It's a picture of that. See how it all goes together? But there's seven distinct ones, and they all manifest something, either about Israel or about the church. And you got to get in there and put a depth to it, and put a structure to it to figure it out. And what you do when you got baptized is you publicly express what took place inside of you when you got baptized by the Spirit. And that's what you do, and you manifest to the world. Now, if you get all this down, uh, you have a, a, a real piece of your Bible. This is why I labor so hard uh, through everything that we do to try to give you every aspect of the Bible. I want you. And it, it takes work. And you have to endure a hardness. And I don't cut you any slack sometimes because I know that we all can get lazy. But you're better than that. And once you get all this down uh, you, and you begin to grow, you continually add these things to your Bible. And, you know, in our Bible Institute, we had, like I said, yesterday we're in the book of Hebrews, and we had Hebrews chapter 10. I cannot tell you the piece of the puzzle you got yesterday. I had a guy get on there last night, and I checked the, look at, see who's on and that, and the guy said, you know what, I got more Bible today in two hours with this guy than I, you could get in 10 years in most Baptist churches. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but you can get some stuff out of it. Because it's God's systematic theology, not man's. 
And I would say if a person gets, got saved and gets into the Bible here and puts this process to work, in four or five years, you really begin to have a handle on the Bible in a fundamental way, and you have what I call a working knowledge of the Word of God. And the rest of your life, what do you do? You build with that. You know, I've always thought of Exodus chapter 16 and what a great picture that is of the Word of God that God gave us. You know, the manna from heaven, picture of the Word of God. It was a supernatural food that God gave the people because they had nothing to eat in the wilderness of sin. And yet God brought the food right to where they went. They didn't have to go to a university to find it. God brought it right around the camp, put it right by the tent, brought it right where they were. And every morning they were told to gather because it was right outside the tent door. And the Bible says that they ate it for strength and growth in the wilderness of sin. Picture what the Word of God will do for you. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 16, verse 17, well, what a great principle is. After God brought it to right where they were and put it all around the camp, the Bible says, Some gathered more, and some gathered less. And boy, if that isn't a commentary on God's people today, I don't know what is. And through it, you know, in your Bible, every Sunday morning, every Saturday morning, an institute, every Thursday night, every Bible study, it rains manna from heaven here. And some gathered more, some gathered less. It comes right to where you are. And God's people, just like God's people in Exodus 16, will do one of two things that they had to do. They were up there in the morning, and there was the Word of God all around them. They pulled that tent flap back, and they just gathered all they could. Or they just went on their way and trampled it under their feet and never did a thing with it. A couple of weeks ago, you know, I told you the two questions that everybody has to answer. One, who are you? Two, where are you? Now you get a third one. And the third question is, why, haven't, why hasn't the Bible had the right effect on us? Why are we not growing and learning and getting a handle on God's Word? We're all busy. Everybody thinks that what they're doing is the greatest thing in the world. Let me tell you something. It's about depth. I don't care what you say or what you think. It's about depth. When you see an iceberg you see just a percentage of it above the water. You look under the water, brother, and it's massive. What do the people see when they look at us underwater? Are we just an icicle on the garage roof? Are we an iceberg big enough to sink the Titanic? And again, it's not what you say, not what I say. It's not what I claim or what you claim, but... What do you do with a book in your own life when, how do you use it? How you deal with it? Do you follow the principles in the Bible? You say you love? Paul said, I've taught you the whole counsel of God. Or you just pick and choose out of the Bible what you want to do and actually think in your mind, oh, I'm okay with God. I'm okay if I just do this. I'm okay if, no, no, no. Depth. When we get to the judgment seat of Christ, and you better listen to me carefully. When we get to the judgment seat of Christ, he's not going to ask you what you knew or what you didn't know. He's going to ask you what you could have found out, but you chose not to. And you learn the Bible one piece at a time. Through God's systematic theology, what I call the seven series. And by the same process, you build strong Christians one person at a time. 
And that builds a strong church, one family at a time. And that's why the depth of the Bible is so vitally important. Well, we're going to hold up.